Hey, and welcome to all the lovers out there. This is the How to Love a Human podcast, moderated by Dr. Candice Nicole Hargons. Follow and come chat it up some more with us on Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Candice Nicole and on our website, drcandicenicole.com. You will find those links in our description box. Today, the How to Love a Human podcast welcomes William to the space. So sit back and join us along this journey on how to love a human. Hey everyone, today on How to Love a Human, I am with William. Hey William, how are you? Good, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Oh, thank you for being here with me. So I always start with my non-researchy question first. (laughs) Are you feeling human or human as fuck? Human AF. (laughs) (laughs) I'm feeling human as fuck. Yes. What is that for you? Tell me. Man, I you know, um, it is it is incredible. I mean, just the world that we are in, mm. just the just uh, I don't even know where to start. I mean, I, it, there's so many layers of things that are working against us. Mm. It just mm. feels like we're constantly. I mean, we're just constantly fighting. I mean, this you know, as an academic at a university. In an administrative role, one of the things, for instance, is these new immigration policies yes. for the national students. And it just is this constant level of chaos from up above, you know, and it, and it's it's and, and I do feel very human because it it and, and this plus the COVID yes. COVID pandemic plus our ongoing understanding of anti blackness, mm-hmm. racism, white supremacy, I mean Everything I, I'm constantly on point, and I'm just yeah. constantly like feeling it, you know. And it's and it's it's exciting, it's exhilarating, and it's depleting. Oh. It's all those things, right? So it's just constantly just up and down. Um, and sometimes I have to go to social media and look at some things, and sometimes I just have to turn it off. Mm. I just can't. I just can't. I just can't bear it. I really can't. Emotionally, I just can't bear it sometimes. Yes. Um, so, yeah, so, yeah. Yes, because it wears you out. I, it really resonated with me when you said two things. You said it feels like chaos from above and it's hard to bear. And yet we're here in it. And that for me resonates as how human as fuck I feel right now because we're yeah. existing in it, even struggling to bear it. And it's chaotic. Ugh. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, to the to the point of your podcast here, your research is, you know, how do we, how do we form and keep those relationships? How do we love? Mm-hmm. I think it's a very great human question. It's, it's, it's awesome. Yeah. I will say my idea of it has shifted so much since I became a parent and then everything that's going on in the context of the globe, in addition to parenting has shifted all of those pieces for me. So even as I'm approaching the second semester of this project, that's sitting with me now. And 
that's one of my identities but i wanted to ask you share your most salient identities with me my salient most salient identities right now is as a as, as an asian american man mm -hmm. um, and my identities have shifted from what aspect of the asian identities that are asian options identity. out there <laughs> yeah. well you know it's it, it's in some ways it's reflected in sort of my scholarship and my research mm -hmm. sometimes you know as the as the outgoing editor for the for this journal of psychology and masculinity uh, for a long time it's you know masculinity was sort of the lens through which i saw a lot of things you know masculinity and then being an asian american um man um and then I have this whole other area of research around social class and classism. Mm -hmm. So I see everything through this lens of class and status and meritocracy and hierarchies and things. And so my 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 area of research right now uh, is sort of this culmination of a lot of my research, and it's focused around um, white supremacy, yeah, and white privilege, and so. Uh, what, what I, so in that way, uh, a lot of what I see and experience um, is again back through the sort of Asian American, Asian Americans through this racialized identity, and seeing how our world is, is, right mm -hmm. um, and I started off in terms of my research and my scholarship and my teaching around Asian Americanness. Yeah. And I'm sort of circling back to it. So it's this sort of ebb and flow, circular sort of identity movement. So, you know, when he asked me, I'm thinking, yeah, I think I see a lot of things through being Asian American. I see the, unfortunately, at the, you know, I see the hostility and the anti-blackness and the anti-Asian and the anti-Latinx and anti-Indigenous, all those things through this racialized lens. Yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, right now I'm, my saline identities are Asian American yeah. masculine. You said Asian ness. And mm -hmm. what, how do you, you said Asian ness, this Asian ness. Yeah. How do you qualify that? Like for you, how does that sit with you? How do you carry it in all of this work? Like what about that gives you this such a sharp lens through which you, you document how our world is, but you also analyze it and deconstruct it. And I wonder what is the gift of your Asianness that really helps shape that. Great question. <laughs> Thank you. It, it, it's a great because so Asianness. When I speak about Asianness and Asian American, I think being Asian American means that I'm a person of color, mm -hmm. but it also means an odd positionality next to whiteness. Yeah. And it's a different positionality than being Latinx or African American, being indigenous or Native American, um, because I, there's a different sort of class structure that operates around being Asian American. And and so it it gives it gives me a particular um, vantage point to, for many Asian Americans, I think, um, to exist in this 
position that's not necessarily anti it's not necessarily in a position where we're directly feeling anti-blackness mm -hmm. it also positions us in a place where we can actually participate in it yeah if we wanted to um and it it it's a position next to whiteness mm. and what and white supremacy is sort of in many ways in terms of its application of white power in our society has designated being black and being latinx as exclusively marginalized people yeah being indigenous as well and has in some ways invited asian americans into this sort of place mm. this position to be racial filters in some ways. Okay. Sort of, you know, sort of we, we benefit from this proxy privilege, which is not really racialized privilege, but it's really position and authority and power, but only because it's contingent upon our proximity to whiteness. Okay. So, so Do you feel like, it does. Do you feel like there was an invitation from whiteness to Asian people, or do you feel like Asian people really transformed something about how they were perceived i think i think it's both mm -hmm. so I, I i um i think it's both and i and i and i should also say that i certainly you know my sort of perspective and description of it isn't uh representative of all asian right right certainly there's class issues and ethnicity issues and ethnocentrism and all those pieces uh relevant in, in my presentation um, but uh, for Asian Americans, I think the recent immigrants since about 1965 represent a particular class of Asian Americans. And then there's also within that group of Asian Americans that migrated from Asia to, uh, from, for instance, from China and from other um, more industrialized Asian nations to the United States, uh, I think they came from a very a particular educated class. Mm. I think they came from a particular kind of class structure, uh, class advantage uh, to the United States. And um, was that the case in your family lineage? Uh, my family came as uh, as my parents. My mom came as a student, mm -hmm. uh, and I came under her student visa. Um, and so I migrated here, migrated here when I was four years old, and um, we 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 grew up in a very poor working class environment. Yeah. My parents owned a restaurant, and I worked in that restaurant and and uh, learned how to do a lot of things. Um, uh, learned about myself in terms of being lower and working class yeah. and. Asian American at the same time, um, and so my perspective around uh, being Asian, Asian American, is a little bit different than those who came with some some wealth. Yeah, yeah. And so there is there are groups of Asian Americans in our community, unfortunately, that understand the oppression directed against Asian Americans but then participate in exclusionary policies that are directed against mostly black and brown community mm -hmm. members, right? So um, being a parent, I think you mentioned this, being a parent meant yeah. that, uh, you know, we went to some of these uh, school board meetings where 
uh, we saw a, a number of a large contingency of Chinese American um, parents who didn't want to flex on these uh, school school zoning mm -hmm. in part as you can imagine because they didn't want to flex out to include more black and brown got it students, mm -hmm. right and um, you know and, and so myself, my wife, and our friends who sort of politically think in a particular way didn't want to get associated with them <laughs> because we were there to support rezoning, but you know, they were, we got sort of lumped into, into the whole, into that whole mix. And so, yeah, the, I, I think Asian Americans can certainly be in it, are certainly in a position where they can participate in anti-blackness. They can do things to move themselves closer to whiteness. Um, and it's unfortunate. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, in that way, I, I sort of see myself as Asian American. I see that through the racialized lens. Yeah. I was thinking about it in the context of COVID and all of the violent language related to Chinese people. And I wonder if that was a moment for maybe Chinese identified Asian people where they felt, well, shit. I don't know if I want to participate in this anymore or whether it was like, you know, that racial identity process where you kind of double down and try to perfect your proximity to whiteness. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's a little bit of both. I yeah. think uh, from the social media, uh, some of the social media I follow, I think they, um, they certainly resonate with that. They, uh, it's, it, I think it's also increased some ethnocentrism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They pull back. And as a result, uh, they also become either, um, they recognize the racism from white people, and then they look, and then they find all, the, they also report on a lot of instances that come from Latinx or African American communities, and so they, and then they participate in that anti-blackness, that narrative, right? That catches on in a different yeah. way together. And so it's, it's, it's a terrible, it's, the hostility is terrible. Um, I don't know if it's shaken the Asian American community okay. in ways that we want it to do. I know I, I want to return back to this because what I asked you about, like the gift of this, this lens, your identities being a lens through which you see the world, what's, what's beautiful about that Asian-ness, about having grown up in a working class family as an Asian boy and man, you know, like what, what did that bring to you that you keep with you? Like, oh, I love this. Like this, this works. This gives me something valuable. That's a really great question <laughs> too. It is. Um, the things that I keep with me, that's a good question. Um, Hmm. I haven't thought about this in such a long time. Mm -hmm. it's, such a, it's such a good... Take your time. <laughs> yeah. Um, hmm. Yeah, what? I, I do appreciate... I do appreciate. Um, I do appreciate one of, that 
one of the things that is strong within Asian American communities, but I think in many other um, communities of color, is our our resonance, our empathy, our support for mm-hmm. our um, elderly, mm-hmm. our, the folks that are generations ahead of us. Yeah. Um, uh, I, for some reason, anytime I see old folks of color, I get a I get a tug, you know, yeah. I feel very soft mm-hmm. about it, uh, and I think that's part of growing up in a multi-generational household. Yeah, yeah. There is a, a, oh my gosh, I underestimated, I think, the value of growing up in a multi-generational household until I moved from my job and I was alone. And then, you know, started my family and I was like, where is everybody at? Like, we don't have any help or support. And I grew up with grandma and mom and siblings and aunts and everything. And that, I didn't know how much of a gift that was. I, I totally understand. I mean, we, um, it, you know, we moved back to Maryland in part because it was closer to um, extended family. Yeah. And uh, one of the things that we realized when, uh, when having our daughter when we were in Iowa was that we didn't have an extended family. Our social networks were racially very homogenous. Yeah, yeah. And um, we did not want to raise our daughter that way. Yeah. We wanted to raise our daughter in a racially heterogeneous environment. Yes. In a class heterogeneous environment mm-hmm. and with extended family. And so it was really important, you know, in terms of our professional careers, we were thinking, you know, at some point we, I don't know if we can stay here that long because there are a lot of things that we don't want our daughter to start to see herself as. Oh, I just want to touch and agree with that. (laughs) It's a, it's a weird sort of thing, but one of the things that, um, one of the things that we sometimes use against our daughter is that we have to tell her you're not a white girl mm. you know? and you've got to stop seeing yourself as a white girl you don't have those privileges and so my wife who's also asian american that's our conversation you know we, we have to and, and she's she's very good at it at, at, you know we've had to direct her conversations to see race to see how white plays against non-white mm. had to be very deliberate about it but as a you know, when she was growing up in a predominantly white environment, it was really hard to hold on to that because everything was moving in a different direction. Mm-hmm. It didn't allow her to hold on to that that conceptualization of, of race in yeah. that environment. And so we wanted her to be exposed to much more diversity. And racial diversity and economic diversity was a was a, a very important piece of it. So yeah. Um, Finding an opportunity to, to come back here where my wife grew up was really important. And, you know, when it came available, I thought, this is, this is an important yeah. opportunity on multiple levels for us to take. I get that. I mean, I just, I really feel that so deeply right now. And you think about school systems and you think about oh, who's in power where and, you know, how seductive whiteness can be. It's just 
for kids, especially when they see those dynamics play out, man, I thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about some identities you didn't immediately disclose that aren't as salient for you, but that may still be like, I think you at first didn't mention social class, but you brought that in and other aspects of marginalization or privilege for you that, that come up one that people often hadn't brought up and then they discussed, we talked about ability. We -hmm. talked about, you know, sexual identity, gender identity, all the Mm -hmm. height. We talked about all kinds of things, (laughs) whatever, whatever ones you just, that come to mind now that you didn't mention, but that still resonate with how you understand yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, being cisgendered, I think is, is an incredible point of privilege for me and, and an identity. I don't, readily put forward um, um, uh, being heterosexual uh, you know um, I think is again one of those identities I don't readily talk about and I yeah. think that's probably not probably is part of the privilege privilege that I have that yeah. I don't have to mention I can just tuck that away and keep that invisible and and allow people to assume what they want to assume because I don't have to. I don't have to talk about it. Yeah. I think those are those are important pieces. And you know, going back, sort of circling back, back to talking about um, our kids and my daughter. I think that's one of the things that we uh, constantly are trying to have or have engage in conversations about or these multiple identities in very similar ways that you're bringing up, which is you know, being cisgendered. Mm-hmm. We assume that she's cisgendered, we don't know, but we constantly allow her opportunities to think differently, to see heterosexuality, um, see you know the span of sexuality yeah. uh, within our purview. Um, but uh, you know the thing that we struggle with, and I think the thing that she struggles with as well, is that it's really hard to to maintain that stance because almost everything around her swirls around to be cisgender yeah. and sexual. So, um, so we try to engage her in those conversations about our identities as well. Being cisgender, being heterosexual, being able-bodied, I think that's an incredible piece right now, especially given our pandemic. Yeah. Our, um, being able to be relatively healthy. I mean, I, um, uh, to be able to have access to health care. I mean, I think there are all those pieces that are that are related to being um, uh, cisgender, mm-hmm. heterosexual, able-bodied, healthy. Yeah. I think all those things certainly come, come together. I think people conceptualize that as health. Like that, that, any diversion from that, and your people still pathologize and think, well, you're not, just, you're really not well. Yeah. You're just, you know, there, there's still a lot of that going on. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have we have the research that shows that almost any anything that's out of that norm of light skin, which you know hits that colorism piece. Um, yeah particular social class and heterosexuality, all those things, um, folks don't, folks who have any of those kinds of identities or in, in multiple sets of those identities do not have to experience day-to-day aggressions or right. day-to-day 
hostilities. It's just in the ecology, mm-hmm. right? And because it's in the ecology, existing in those environments is in and of themselves deleterious to their health, right? So um, black men's health, for instance, you know, they have a higher morta- all-cause yeah. mortality rates. And um, it is because they experience uh, constant racism. But even if they don't, it's so hostile in those environments yeah. to cause such a it causes such a health consequence that um, that it's it it's just in the environment right it's just out there and it gets to this idea of you know when universities or other sectors try to try to do try to investigate racism in their in their in their environment yeah. they try to count. Right. They try to count like yeah. how many, how frequent is this experience of racism, and you know you have to really pull it back and say it, it, it is important, and then it's not yeah. right? because you know the white perspective is you know any incident is important uh, is is uh, is pertinent, uh, but then you know I think they they don't understand that for many folks of color or people with any kind of marginalized identity, uh, experience of marginalization, racism, oppression, microaggression can last a day, yep. can last a week, can last a month. I mean, it just resonates. It just mm-hmm. bounces around, right? And um, I don't know if we ever purge that. It just sort of yeah. take it in, we absorb it, right? Because our body, our body reflects that. Or, you know, when we get hit sick, mm-hmm. Um, when we die of illnesses earlier, I mean, all those things are a result of constantly absorbing that racism, right? Yeah, so. that's that's a part of what I'm curious about. What I am studying is just are there interventions that can, for me, mind body interventions in particular? Because you're right, the health consequence of living and existing mm-hmm. in a system organized. I'm I just said I'm removing the language of white supremacy and replacing it with white inferiority complex like with (laughs) but existing in a system that supports and upholds a white inferiority complex it just erodes you from the inside out and i'm wondering is if there are things that we can we can do that we can take ownership of that are indigenous ways of healing that have been erased from our books or things that just work for us that we can do to protect or prevent some of that. And it's, well, it stands to be seen, but you know, that's, that's in qu- a question for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I think it's really important to find small groups that can, that you can affiliate with. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and often those small groups tend to be groups that might exclude people who are white. Yeah. And, and, um, Very often. (laughs) So they give you an opportunity to really let your guard down. So, yeah, it it gives you an opportunity to let your guard down. And and that kind of stress level, being able to sort of depart from it for for even a little bit, is so important. You find yourself with a friend, and that friend is likely going to be maybe a friend of color, and you know you're 
you're able to just not be that person that has to be on all yeah. the time out there. It's an incredible, it's an incredible gift, right, that we have that we can laugh and have joy and have a moment with each other, and and um, and, and I think those spaces, those spaces of joy, uh, scare white people. Mm, mm, mm. So, <laughs> so, so you know, it, I I think it just it it not only so not only does it scare them but it also hits at this idea that they are not invited mm-hmm. and what it means to be not invited is that it directly counters their sense of entitlement white supremacy yes. <laughs> white supremacy white supremacist ideologies are built around this notion of and i, I hate to get too far afield from from our conversation, but it sort of is built around this idea of subtle, settler colonialism. Mm-hmm. Subtle colonialism is all about invasion. Yes. It's all about accumulation, right? That ideology has never left white supremacy. So when they see a person of color or they see a group of a group of people of color, um, their first thought is, how do I get in there? Mm-hmm. How do I take And um, survey it. And survey it, right? And how do I police it? And if I'm not, then I'm going to destroy it. That is settler colonialism, right? And so that's never left. And so when we see barbecue Becky, for instance, mm-hmm. um, or anything of that sort, where they're you know they can't allow black and brown and Asian and indigenous joy to just exist, yeah, you got to know that that is 500 years of whiteness being being implicated in that particular instance. It's not just that individual white person, it's the ideology Absolutely. in practice for 500 years plus that's being implemented at that moment. So, um, you know, what do we do with that? I mean, I, I think, like I said, it's really, I think it's really important that we, that we allow ourselves those moments of joy, that mm-hmm. we allow our, of ourselves those times of connection. I think it's also very important that in as a way to combat some of that some of the oppression is that we learn to uplift and celebrate each other yeah everybody especially folks of color you know i think you know when we're anytime that we can elevate and celebrate and support i think that gives me incredible joy yeah it's it's you know and that's just been in some ways, that's always been sort of my way of being, and maybe that's why I'm a counseling psychologist. <laughs> maybe. I, I love a good celebration. I, something you said reminded me, I was doing this training yesterday, and a white woman asked me, you know, I work in a school system, and I have to constantly evaluate myself around when I see a group of black boys laughing and enjoying themselves and fooling around you know i'm struggling with aren't there certain standards of how you're supposed to behave and appropriate and you know what if they knock something over and i was like you know she was like and then i feel like i don't want to say anything because i don't want to be perceived as racist and also you know i feel like there are certain standards i have to uphold for my job and i was like you know you had an opportunity to choose connection and you went towards correction and 
your point about settler colonialism is so right. It was like, you could have went over there and say, hey, y'all, how you guys doing today? It's, I'm so happy to have you here in this library and left it alone. <laughs> you could have left it alone, but you felt like you had to make a correction. And she was just like, and then she, we were doing like embodied work. So she put her hand here and she was like, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with my, my shame about that right now and how, how I know how true that is for me. And I was like, yeah, figure out why you keep doing that. Like what's, what's going on with that? And, and we, it came down to as a, as a white person, she's afraid of how white people will police her if she aligns with blackness or aligns with anything that's not white. I was like, cause you know where the consequence is gonna be. There's gonna be a consequence. So that, that mentality that you spoke of is so spot on, but I wanna shift because this is so good, but <laughs> I have a question. I will say that okay. they, they, they call this, uh, the way the phrase frame us folks is that they call it epistemic traitor. <sighs> white people consider themselves consider them epistemic traitors and they are so threatening that they actually end up being targeted from death yes they drive cars into them they shoot them right because they can't tolerate those white people so yes, oh wow yeah but they can be very powerful right because they are mm -hmm. so yeah that's that's what we want are these white epistemic traitors so I love that. That was the first time me hearing that. So I'm definitely about to dig into that. <laughs> we're like, we're throwing away the language of accomplice and we're going full traitor. <laughs> so what does love mean to you? I, you know, I, that again, that's a really hard question because you know, that in, in, in today's world, I've really struggled with this idea of love and, and how to practice it and how how to be with it, and um, I practice love with my family. I think that's really important. I think it's, um, um, especially as we start talking about race and racism, mm -hmm. I think it's really incredible. It's really important that um, love features into how we can be compassionate, mm -hmm. how we can listen, how we can understand, how we can console, that's really important how we can use the language of love as we look upon our world today you know where what what does love look like mm -hmm. you know the protest is love mm -hmm. right and it's, it's a mass movement of love and yeah. i think that's one way to describe it i think we've got to fight against the media sources that that try to tell us it's protest yes. and looting and criminal but it's really this opportunity and again another opportunity for us to try to figure out how to instill love in a system that's so bent on mm. anti-everything anti-blackness um outside of my family uh, outside of the, the my intimate folks here i think it's 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 love looks like what i was describing earlier which is uh uplifting and supporting mm -hmm. i think mm -hmm. that's really that's really important. Um, in my role, I think love means that um, I use my positionality as, let's say, a department chair or and, and a full professor 
to absorb to absorb things yeah because I need to mm-hmm. and I can and I and I can and I need to recognize that I can do that I th- it does take a toll on me so I don't oh, yeah Oh, yeah. I don't want to set myself like a, a, I'm a martyr, but I do see my my role, my position is really important in terms of saying, you know, there are things that to absorb some of the negativity so that we can create an environment of support, caring, co- and, and be being good colleagues. Yeah. Um, How do you go when you said absorb that hit because like we talked about how this stuff gets connected in your body. And I I think of absorption as an embodied thing where it's like negativity comes at you and then where do you carry it? Where mm-hmm. where do you place it after the absorption? You gotta find people that you can talk to. Right? Yeah. I mean I think yeah. that's and again that gets down to finding some small groups of folks that you can that you can talk to, that you can express these things that understand it in such a way that you don't have to say everything. Yes. So I think that that sort of, it's not, you know, psychological, it's not necessarily mind reading, but there's a level of empathy around experiences like around racism where you can sort of, you know, give each other a look or just say mm-hmm. something. And that's an incredibly supportive, supportive piece that we can offer each other. Yeah. Um, you don't have and, to give generations of history about why that moment was negative or why that moment was toxic when you're with people that get it on that level when they get it they get it right and i think that's really that's really important and i and i and i think we just in the academy we just have an absence of being willing and able to express vocal and vocal support and yeah. just to say, you know, you've been great. This is a wonderful piece. Thank you for doing that. And, you know, in my role, I try to do that as frequently, as often as I can. And, you know, because I, I don't want to forget that for many people in our lives, while we are very collegial, very friendly, and we appreciate each other, um, a lot of people don't get that kind of reinforcement yeah. all the time. And that, and that can be very powerful to see just to be very consistent and say thank you, thank you, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for your support. And I found that practice to be incredibly um, important. Yeah. And the other piece to, to, you know, in terms of demonstrating love or just showing love and what that means is in, in many ways just um, knowing that there's nothing, there's nothing that's beneath me in terms of what I can do. Mm. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to describe that, you know, sort of. So I'll give a, I'll give a quick yeah. anecdote. Mm-hmm. Um, a, long, a long time ago when I was an assistant professor, I went to Teachers College to do a presentation. And that was back when um, uh, doing PowerPoint presentations was sort of still novel. <laughs> and, and so one of my, my backup, my backup was um, I, had, I always carried all of my presentation on um, Overheads. Uh huh. Yes. That was my backup. <laughs> so wherever I went, every presentation, you know, I'd have like this backup of like really heavy plastic film and stuff like that. So um, one time, I, so when I was a teacher's college making a presentation, the technology just 
just didn't work yeah. at all. So the the backup was to pull this uh, overhead over. But where I was standing and where the overhead lamp projector had to be was it just made it impossible to um, to do both present and move back and forth on the overhead. And um, so at that time when I was making the presentation, one of the folks in the audience was Bill Cross. And so Bill Cross is in the audience thinking, oh my God, I cannot, I cannot as an assistant professor make this terrible presentation in front of Bill Cross. And Bill Cross, he may not remember this, and he may not remember me, but I, I remember it. And you know, he was really generous. He's just like, hey, thank you, know, looking forward to your presentation and stuff. And he saw that I was sort of struggling with it. He came over and just said, you do your presentation, I'll do your overheads. Mm -hmm. right? Wow. I was like, what? <laughs> like, I'll do your overhead. Just not just point at me, tell me when you want me to flip your overheads. I was like, okay. And that and that's that's that that's love. That, that's love, right? And that, that resonates with me and that sits with me because you know, I ever since that time, you know, one of the it, I just thought that is the kind of professor you want to be, the kind yes. of person in the world that you want to be is just say, yeah, you know, what do you need from me? I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll flip your overhead. You know? mm -hmm. that, was, that was incredible, you know, because I, and, you know, afterwards I was really profusely thanking Bill Cross. He's like, no problem, got you. So I was like, and that was it, you know. Wow. Um, and like I said, he, he doesn't, he may not remember me, I remember. Yeah. I remember that particular piece. And that was a particular kind of ethic that I thought demonstrated support, love. Uh, I thought it was a particular kind of ethic that was really important in terms of uplifting and making sure that our our faculty of color are successful. Yeah. And, and that was... And that that's what it takes sometimes. That's what it takes. You know, you show up. You have to show up. You show up. You have, you yes. have to show up, right? <laughs> Which is the first piece. Um but then show up and support and, mm -hmm. and elevate. I think that's really important in terms of how we want to perform love, be loving in our environment. I liked your language around love as a practice. When yeah. you began this this part of the conversation, you was like, you know, I practice love like this. Like it's not a mastery, but a constant evolution of a series of practices as you refine what your love is and then the piece about showing up for people and being supportive. Thank you for sharing that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's a practice that thankfully I have a great spouse and a partner who's helped me learn about myself and how I can do these practices. Because honestly, I mean, I, I had a great family, but it wasn't a family that I would say was profusely, um, you know, exorbitantly in terms of articulating love mm -hmm. and demonstrating love. I think we were working class. And so, um, my my parents were always working. I, I le learned love from my grandmother mm -hmm. mostly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and so there were a lot of things I had to unlearn, and then relearn, and then as I relearn, constant practice. And um, and I thank my partner. I mean, I, I don't want to put too you know put it all on her, but you know I thank my partner for being willing and able and and just being very direct with me about when I'm not doing well. So yeah. that, that's Her loving you in that way with directness and intention.
really transformed your ideas and expression and practice of love. Definitely. Mm -hmm. What would the world look like if it loved humans like you? Oh, gosh. What would the world look like? Gosh, wouldn't we... God, man. What a world to imagine, mm -hmm. right? If the world could love humans like me, I mean, I think... That's even hard to imagine. Yeah. Right? It's hard to so many that. people get stuck there, like, I'm stuck. <laughs> Yeah, we, I mean, we've been a totally, I mean, we've been a totally different world. I, I, I can't even imagine, it's really even hard to imagine yeah. what that would look like. Um, I'm so caught up in incremental changes, mm. you know, revolutionary change sometimes escapes me in terms yeah. of what that would look like. Um, you'd be compassionate, mm. you'd be accepting. Loving, I mean, it would be openness and people, people would have enough, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. I think people would have enough. They, you know, we wouldn't have, yeah, that's an interesting piece. I, I, I pivot to sort of the negative instead of staying on the positive. Yeah. So that's a really good, really good question. Staying on the positive. Yeah, you know, I, I, it's even hard to imagine. It's a great question. Mm -hmm. It's hard. Question. I mean, it's hard to imagine when we're so far removed from it. So I really get that. But you've been imagining this world in the way you write. Like the things mm -hmm. you write about are envisioning this world. The mm -hmm. way you, the way you critique these systems is, to me, the way I read it anyway is because you envision a world where that doesn't exist anymore. And so I'm wondering, you know, when yeah. you draw on that, like, I have to critique this system because I know this ain't it. <laughs> I, so, I'm very much invested in one particular kind of set of tools. Mm, okay. I've not developed the other set of tools. So, so I, I I've actually, I've thought about this too, and and so, um, because you're, it's a great question. The set of tools that I'm using right now are are critique. Mm, okay. right? It's all it's critique. Um, and the tools that I'm using, these cognitive sort of theoretical tools, empirical tools, research tools, are about ferreting out how power operates and how supremacy operates and how oppression operates. Unfortunately, those are not the tools that we can also use to build. Mm, okay. Right? It, it really requires a different set of tools because these tools are meant to dismantle. Mm, mm -hmm. The tools that I'm using to dismantle are not the same tools that we can use to build. It really requires colleagueship, right? It requires multiple people. There are people that are doing this sort of this particular work and there are other people that need to do this kind of work. And we talk, right? Yeah. But um, but 
So yeah, so the so the the, the critical tools cannot also be the tools that we use to build. Mm. That's my perspective. Okay. Because they're they're different they're different things, right? It's like a hammer versus a paintbrush. I like that metaphor, a hammer versus a paintbrush. But they're different, right? Because they, they're meant to do different things. And and so I appreciate the question because, you know, it is hard for me to imagine it because I'm so, I'm so um, uh, focused on identifying and, and figuring out how power operates and how supremacy operates and how sexism and classism and all these other pieces um, and that's my job. Yeah. And I rally around other folks who are doing the other piece as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. So, and we have to work together, you know, because we, we have to work together. Yeah. Because they have to work hand in hand. So, yeah. I was, my, no, I was, I was hearing that as you gave this metaphor, this beautiful metaphor of a hammer and a paintbrush, and it brought me back to, so, me and my husband have been renovating this house for years now. It has, oh my God, it's the worst HGTV is, is a whole lie. Like, I thought it was going to be three weeks and then we were going to have a 1901 house turn into a 2016, 17 house, right? But the point I'm making is, you know, we used a hammer in, uh, what's the big hammer thing? It's not a hammer, but it's a, a sledgehammer to tear it down. And as we did that, we saw every single flaw. I mean, we saw all where, where it had been eroded at the foundation. We saw the probably 100-year-old insulation, everything. And also, we rebuilt it with a hammer. Yeah. Okay. Every nail like had to be hammered back, you know, and so when you said that, I was like, but we also needed a paintbrush <laughs> like we needed yeah. we needed need both, yeah. yeah, we also needed a paintbrush, so it just really gave that's me a way to describe it mm -hmm. I appreciate that that's a better that's a much better way to describe it. You do need something else mm -hmm. I, like yeah. that. I like that a lot see, we um, just co-created that, thank <laughs> you. <laughs> What identities yeah. in others do you sometimes struggle to love? Oh, oh gosh, good questions. That I struggle to love. Uh, gosh. You know, we, uh, we just came back from a trip. We were, and I really struggled to love folks that really identified with their whiteness. Mm -hmm. I don't know how else to describe yeah. it. Just there, were, I, I, I saw it that way. I, you know, it's that they just did not want us around. It was mm. sort of a hard re-experiencing of that piece for me, I think. Yeah, it's, yeah, there's, a, there's a particular kind of viral whiteness that, that is happening that I guess has always been around, it, not guess, it has always been around, but I think given the context, it's just become 
much more viral and yeah. much more expressive, much more hostile. Mm. But it's also it's always been there. Um, uh, but in this particular case, I think it it manifested too as a kind of brashness and a sense of invulnerability. Uh, part because as we were traveling around, you know, uh, in Southern California where, where I grew up, it's everybody you know, you have to wear a mask, but mm-hmm. quite, quite literally. Mo- almost everybody who wasn't wearing a mask was a white person. Yes, <laughs> I don't I know see that all the time. That. All the time. I, 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 you know, it's like I, I, I don't even know what to make it. I mean, I do know what to make mm-hmm. of it, but I just, you know, it just was incredible because you know I was there with my spouse, my mother, and our, my daughter as well. You know, I'm like I'm trying to, you know, my masking ladies are you know, trying to protect everybody here, but. And it's like you gotta do your part. You gotta yeah. do something. You, know, you can't just think that this is just some imaginary fire, uh, imaginary um, uh, disease that's going around. Um, and so I, I really struggle with that. You know, and so in my in my mind, in my heart, my body, you know, I, I was constantly for about a week. I was just really in this sort of Helmsian immersion yes. yeah 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 I, I just could not i just could not get out of it until i got home so because i, I just couldn't stand it. Mm-hmm. i don't know what it was but it just it pissed you off yeah mm-hmm. you know it's I mean, i'm talking about very you know deep helms, you yes know, so yeah and it made me think of it made me think of Janet Holmes, too, when you talked about this whiteness, because I was like, white people are just really full out here in disintegration right now. Like, just really doubling down on, like, all of the toxic aspects of that culture and just... And and so I was seeing, as you were saying that, I was seeing Helms, but from the white identity model, <laughs> and what would cause somebody to do that? Like, what, what, would, what would lead you to think that you're invincible? <laughs> And be willing to annihilate other people through your disrespect. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, you know, from my theoretical standpoint, I'd say, you know, it goes back to this idea of sort of this colonial mentality. Mm -hmm. I mean, they've always been the folks that are, you know, especially in communities of color, they've been the ones that were the disease carriers, Mm -hmm. right? Even though they see people of color as the diseased, yeah. literally as the diseased folks, they've been the disease carriers into those communities. And so, um, it, you know, there's a level of hubris, there's, a, you know, um, uh, ethnocentrism, yeah. white supremacy, white exceptionalism, all those different pieces are, are operating. Um, and uh, I know you didn't ask this, but I, I, I also think it's 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 going to be interesting to see what comes out of the protest, this global yeah. protest that we're having right now. Um, I think there's a lot. I think people are talking about structural and institutional racism and cultural racism. I think the language is now getting out there. Um, my skepticism, <laughs> if I might offer, mm-hmm. is that I think. At some point in the near future, we're going to have to then 
figure out a way to combat those that language that's going to be used back against us. Absolutely. So, absolutely. You know, cause I, 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 I think it becomes white supremacist ideology becomes very proficient. It absorbs that language, that critique, and learns how to continue on. Um, and I think we're going to find ourselves in the same situation again. Right? Mm -hmm. It's just, it's, but it's a, it's going to take a different form with yeah. a different language. It's going to require different kind of labor from us, but I, I don't know if when we talk about structural institutional racism, if, you know, if mostly white people are going to be committed to really saying, I'm okay taking a back seat, right. you know, or, or not having this power or not being first in line. Mm -hmm. uh, I just don't, I, you know. Yeah. And I, and I just really feel the, the need for that to take up a hall space. To have the front seat is born of inferiority. Like you can't be healthy and well and feel like a whole human and also feel like you have to hoard all the resources. Like that you have to fuck up all the systems. Like you just <laughs> like how do we how do we let me just move to our final question. <laughs> what do you love most about you? What do you love most about you? Oh, I, I really love being my particular age right now, mm -hmm. you know, and where I'm at. And, and you didn't talk about age as a salient identity, but what is it about this age that feels like, yes? You know, I just, and my spouse has also read, uh, said this to me as well, is that, you know, once I turned 50, I was like, yeah, you know, I just, I started to just feel like it's okay to say and do certain things and so you know there's something there, and it, and and having that particular kind of um acceptance allowed me to also be accepting of lots of other parts of myself mm -hmm. in terms of you know um being particularly aged and saying oh you know i can't run as fast i get injured um I need to sleep more. Yeah, you know, I'm not going to talk. You know, so that when I hit that hit fifties, that a lot of a lot of these things started to happen, and I just found myself really loving this particular point in my life more so than I imagined that I yeah. would when I was a lot younger. I thought, oh my god, turning fifty sounds terrible, <laughs> but but um, it sounds it's, like it's been liberating. It's actually been very, it, it, not actually, it has been very liberating. Mm -hmm. It has been terrific, I think. You know, uh, related to that is um, I have a great partner, a great spouse, a great person with me, and that is, that's been incredible. Um, and our daughter is at a particular age. She's just turning 13. Oh. So she's been, yeah, so it's, you know, she's, you know, it's a great, it's a great, I, I've just been so fortunate, so blessed to sort of find myself in this place right now with all these things. And, um, yeah, that's what I love about myself right now. Mm -hmm. And I, I appreciate it. And I, and I like it. You know, I like, I feel like I'm getting fatter and, and I'm like, 
okay. Yes. <laughs> yes. No, I'm going to keep myself healthy, but it's like, yeah, what can uh, I do? It's just, it is what it is. Those, those, those are the kind of things. You're sitting in a whole space of it is what it is right now at this age. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? All of it. I appreciate mm -hmm. the whole space of it. Exactly. Yeah. Well, is there yeah. anything I, I didn't ask you that you think would be really important for this conversation as we wrap up? Um, I, I know we talked a lot about whiteness, and, and, I, it, it, and I hate to even say this, but, you know, for people who are listening to this, I, I'm not anti-white. <laughs> you don't have to feel the need to say that. Right? <laughs> people can just deal with it. Talk about whiteness and stuff like that, and some folks who are white that might listen to this or hear, or you might see a transcription of it. It's like, God, they really, they really hate white people. Like, no, 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 we hate white supremacy. We, we hate white way white power is demonstrated all those different things you know that that's what we hate that's what we're working against um and i and i also just want to say thank you for your research and your scholarship i think it's a great lovely approach to this notion of intersectionality and kind of social justice work it's to really f make us remember that as humanness, in many ways, we want to focus on how we generate relationships, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. how we can create loving relationships. And it's always so important to have that part within our multiple conversations. Yeah. So I just want to say thank you to you, your scholarship and your research and your advocacy and your visibility in this area. I think it's really, it's just really great. Thank uh, you. It's, and uh, as someone, you know, I, I suppose that you know, I have to see myself as sort of a more senior person. I love seeing young scholars like you who are doing this really great work. I just, I just, it's, it's great. It's so uplifting. It gives me goosebumps to <laughs> folks that are doing doing the work that you're doing because I, I think that's how the field is supposed to evolve, and that's the the questions that we should be asking and the things that we should be moving to. So I found that we didn't, I, I appreciate that so much because I found that we didn't talk a lot about love as psychologists, even mentioning it in meetings, we were doing like strategic planning stuff. And I was like, well, what about love as a value? And people were like, ah, <laughs> I was like, uh, <laughs> what the, what are we doing here? If that's not, <laughs> what else are we doing but just having having the conversation yeah. with psychologists has been really refreshing for us to like reflect on that and the transformative yeah. power of it and cent centering voices of people with marginalized identities and theorizing yeah. about love for me is core yeah yeah in part because you're starting from a different place in terms of asking about how love can be healthy and how it creates mental health. You know, all of our psychotherapy systems don't ask that. Mm. That's what locks us out. And it's hard to introduce it because it sounds superficial or sounds mm -hmm. trite, you know, it does. And, and, and that's, and so you do, like you, what you're doing is you have to start from a different epistemic place. Yeah. Like love, what is this and how do we keep that, keep it going versus what is, I don't know, the edible complex yes. started yes. and started Why the fuck do we still talk about this? Right. Um, we still keep talking about Freud, and, but, you know, 
Nathan Rogers for that sense, but that's a whole number. That is, but I'm so, I'm gonna definitely put a pit in place. it. All <laughs> different questions. Yeah, but thank you so much for being with me. I appreciate all that you shared, your wisdom, your insights, your scholarship, all of it. So I hope you have a great evening. Get some rest, something else that'll fatten you, all of those fun things. <laughs> Thank you. I, I like I said, I so appreciate your, your line of questioning and inviting me to participate. I just thank you thanks and if you have i always ask this if you have any ideas about other people you think would be good for this feel free to email me and let me know when you think about people who you want to hear from about love oh yeah okay <laughs> i will definitely all right take good care thank you bye, bye. have a good night you too